people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a very special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with Jonathan Penner, actor, producer, writer, survivor, and also one of the people responsible for bringing some classic exploitation films to the Tribeca Film Festival this year, bringing a trio of classics, Tenement by Roberta Finlay, Ms. 45 by Abel Ferreira, and... Not to be missed, Basket Case by Frank Henenlotter. Actually, all three of these are not to be missed. Hear more details as we are talking. I knew Mr. Penner's name before we started talking, and oddly enough, he seemed to know mine as well. Enjoy the interview. I recognized your name, and I'm like, Mike White, there are two Mike Whites that I know of. And I've met the other Mike White, and I said, I said, what's so weird is I had just bought your book. In Portland, Maine. Portland, Maine has this funky strip of like comic book, VHS, vinyl, and funky books. And I am a big collector. I was a big fan of your magazine. I will tell the truth, though. I did not acknowledge the magazine in the back of the zine that I just made because I didn't use anything from any of Kesha du Cinema in the zine. But I talk about a bunch of the other zines that I love. So so I'm a big fan of yours, man. Really a pleasure to meet you. Well, thank you. It's very nice to meet you as well. You're welcome. I know you don't have to say you're a fan of mine. You probably don't know. I mean, why would you be? But I am a fan of yours. There you go. Well, I want to know the Jonathan Penner story. I want to know. I mean, you have led a life, sir. And I want to know a little bit more about that before we even start talking about Tribeca this year. I got involved with show business. I was a little kid who had a big personality and a big voice. And everyone said, oh, you should be in radio. Or you should. I mean, since I was like eight years old, people said, oh, you should be the narrator. You should be an actor. You know, I don't know. I guess I was acting. I was a big hambo, which probably squelched my, my true acting career because I was too hambo. So I wanted to be an actor since I was about eight. And then right around the same time, I found, and you and your fans may know, there's an old paperback book. One of the first books about horror movies was called Movie Monsters by a guy named Dennis Gifford, right? Who went on to write maybe the greatest book about horror movies ever, Pictorial History of the Horror Film. And so I fell in love with this book, man. It was like a dream come true. You know, I don't know if you were a monster kid. I'm sure a lot of us, you know, a lot of people are or were what we used to call monster kids. And, you know, people were like baseball fans. People were hockey fans. I don't know, you know. And and I was like a monster fan. And I read monster books. And there was a time there in the 60s when there was the Munsters, the Adams Family, and a song called The Monster Mash. And, and anyway, there's a lot of sort of ooky, fun monster stuff. And uh, famous monsters of film land, of course, you know. I fell in love with all that stuff and then just slowly kind of became a real rabid movie nerd 
you know, always loved monsters and horror movies, but sort of expanded my horizons and just never stopped and, and was lucky enough to start to act professionally. And, and I've had a career as an actor and fell in love with an extraordinary woman. And uh, we supported each other. She directed films. and I, I wrote some films, produced films, made stuff together, which was brilliant, you know, and wonderful. I co-wrote a book about horror cinema for Tashin with a guy named Steven Schneider, who's a super talented producer, brilliant guy and, and author. Really, he's a brilliant editor as much as he is an author. He's the kind of guy that's like, like, you know, what we should do is a book called The Thousand Movies You Should See Before You Die. And he would sell that and get his friends to write 90, you know, 900 of the reviews. Do you want to be a part of this? So he got me to do it. He got my kid to do one of those like sixth grade. You know, my kid's a published author now because he wrote a 400 word review. Anyway, what else? I got to be on Survivor, which was amazing. That was a totally weird thing that happened. And I was lucky enough to to wind up on Survivor. I never thought that that would happen. And then was invited back a couple of times, which was really, really fun. I was married for many years. I had a wonderful marriage. My wife passed away last year from a a condition called ALS. So I've become kind of an ALS advocate. That was, is a major chapter in my story. How did you get to be on Survivor? I'm curious how that happened. I was at a birthday party for a good friend of mine whose wife is childhood best friends with the casting director of Survivor at that time. So we were all at a party. It was a pretty big party in Hollywood, whatever. And I was talking like I'm talking now, although I probably had six drinks of me and I was probably like talking like this, you know, I don't know. Somebody came up to me and said, you know, somebody would like to talk to you. And I said, sure. So I went over and she said, I'm the casting director for these shows. And would you and your wife, my wife was with me and my wife is a fantastic character too. Better character than me. I said, too. I don't know if I'm a good character, but my wife was wonderful. Anyway, um, you know, would we be interested in either of these shows? And we were both fans of Survivor, not really of Amazing Race. It was still, I think it had just started at that point. But I said, yeah, shit, that'd be amazing, you know. She said, okay. And, you know, we started talking about it a little bit. I mean, at this party, it was, okay, well, send a video. I mean, I had to go through the entire process. Um, but she said, if you send it in, like, right now, I think I can get it looked at, you know, at a high level. I've sold pilots as a writer to CBS. I had a TV show as an actor on CBS. I've done a lot of business with CBS, which is one of the things about Survivor and any show, like a reality show, you're not supposed to hire you know, people who work at the network because they think the fix is it. Um, she said, oh, don't worry about it, which only meant that she'd never heard of me as an actor. And the show that I sold to them as a pilot did not go, which is true. So anyway, so I made up a video like the next day in my backyard and just said, I'd love to do Survivor and I'd love to eat a snake and I'd love to backstab and sleep in the dirt. And if you're looking for a guy like me, you know, let's let's go have some fun. I mean, that's literally what I said, you know. So the feedback was, well, that was pretty raw, raw video. And I said, I didn't know, you know, you told me to make a video. There are people who put a lot of effort into you know, trying to make a, a classy video or a high, high quality video. This was not that. Anyway, I just said, you know, I'll say yes, as long as they say yes, never in a million years thinking that they would just keep saying, all right, let's take it to the next level. And all right, let's keep going. And finally, they said, you're on. So I got to play Survivor. It was really amazing. You were in one that has been on my list to cover for 
years now and not to put you on the spot, but maybe we can talk next year a little bit about the last supper. Anytime you want, man. I'm so proud of that movie. There's a movie that just keeps on giving for those of you who, who may not know the film, at least 30 years ago, uh, I'm in the film, but it, it really an amazing cast. It's a movie that my wife directed. She and I helped produce and we worked on the script, although Dan Rosen gets the full credit because he wrote the original draft of the script, but it's got a brilliant cast with like Bill Paxton, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago, but Ron Perlman, Courtney Vance, Cameron Diaz, Annabeth Gish, and myself are kind of the leads, but then there's, you know, oh, Jason Alexander shows up for, for a second and Mark Harmon shows up and all these fantastic actors, Nora Dunn is in it. And it's a tiny little black comedy made right at the height of the American indie film sort of zeitgeist that was going on. I mean, Stacy and I went to Sundance. I think Spank the Monkey was there that year, David O. Russell's first film. I think Reservoir Dogs was there. Anyway, it, you know, it was a really great time to be making little indie movies. And um, I'd love to talk about it. It's, I think it's a wonderful movie still, you know, and more timely than ever. It's a political black comedy and funny as hell. How did you get involved with Tribeca? A good friend of mine is Jane Rosenthal, who runs Tribeca. She and I were talking and I said, you know, there's this secret history of movies in New York and Tribeca is far too classy to ever handle any of these movies, but you might consider it because it's cool. They're cool movies. Some of the filmmakers who are New York filmmakers are still alive. They made New York movies in New York, about New York. They were New Yorkers. You might appeal to a different audience and you might bring the Tribeca audience in to see some films that, that they might not have seen or wanted to see before. And she said, well, that's an interesting idea. I mean, she's like the head of Tribeca. So she said, well, it's an interesting idea. You should meet with the folks who actually run the festival, the nuts and bolts. Of course, when the call came in to them that like Jane would like you to meet her friend who's an expert in horror movies and exploitation movies, you know, you know, I had to make sure that they weren't just letting me do it as Jane's friend, because then it would piss everybody off. You know, me too. I like, I wanted to earn the right to do this and be the person that they felt comfortable, you know, doing this. So, so we talked a lot about it. Who might do it? We're going to show three movies. They call them the midnight screenings. They start about nine o'clock. One of the filmmakers is um, Roberta Findlay, who we can talk about. The notorious Roberta Findlay is alive and well, at least alive, and going to show a movie called Tenement. And she she got the she got the press release and she's like, you didn't tell me it was at midnight. She's, you know, 70 some. And I said, I said, it's quote midnight, Roberta. It's quote midnight. It's actually 845. He's like, oh, you know, for Tribeca, that's midnight. Anyway, so Roberta's going to come out and show uh, Tenement, which is an unbelievable kind of revenge, urban revenge story. Abel Ferrara uh, is coming in from Rome. He now lives in Rome. And people would know him from Bad Lieutenant and The Funeral and uh, a lot of movies. And his first great movie is a movie called Ms. 45. And we're going to show Ms. 45 and he's going to introduce that. And the third filmmaker is a guy, also a New Yorker named Frank Ennenlotter, who's showing Basket Case, which was his first movie and an amazing movie. A real homage to 42nd Street. Anyway, all these films were shot in the mean streets of New York in the 80s and uh, late 70s, early 80s. 
and he's a, a, a great raconteur. And here's a guy who knows probably more about these movies, Mike, than you and I combined. He is a walking encyclopedia of exploitation films. I, you know, I, I, I was able to get to these filmmakers, invite them. They all were gracious enough to accept. And that's what we're going to do. So I've made this zine, um, which is not as important as the, as the movies themselves. But what I realized was I was talking to my kids who are in their 20s and fabulous. And they were like, you know, there are going to be some people that you're really going to offend and are going to be pissed off. I mean, these movies were really of a very different time. These are not Me Too movies. These are not PC movies. You, you know, you're going to have to talk about that, which I'm happy to do, of course. And, and then I realized, like, we needed to, even before people might get to the theater, maybe not for your fans, but for some of these Tribeca fans, we're like, oh, this looks interesting. A film called Ms. 45, darling. Let's go see that. All these pictures have sexual assault in them. They all have a lot of violence. Their treatment of women is totally barbaric and ancient. And I just wanted to try to come up with some way to contextualize the movies for today's Tribeca audience. So I came up with this idea that we could do an old school zine and contextualize all three filmmakers and what the grindhouse or exploitation experience was all about and have a lot of fun with that. So I've got some stuff from a lot of different magazines, including Famous Monsters and Creepy and Eerie and unfortunately not your magazine. If I'd known I was going to talk to you, I'd have made sure I'd get something in there. I think people are going to enjoy it. Have they done this kind of thing before? It doesn't sound like they've done the retro screenings, but have they ever had like the midnight ish? No, they, well, no, they have, they, they have midnight screenings. Now they're showing the black phone, which is a new Joe Hill adaptation that uh, Scott Derrickson did with Ethan Hawke, um, which I'm actually really excited to do. Blum has J- uh, Jason Blum, uh, has a quote in the zine. I asked him to tell us a little something about Grindhouse movies. So they do show a new edgy fair, but they have not done this kind of retro of nasty. I mean, as Roberta calls them dirty movies. And when I said to her, I said, I'm calling on behalf of Tribeca. And she's like, why? Why would they want to show my movies? I made dirty movies, you know? And I said, well, that's why. You know, even you need dirt to grow things. Roberta, not everything needs to be so clean and sanctimonious, you know? And she's like, that's for goddamn sure. She's hilarious. Anyway, so I'm bringing her out and hopefully people don't throw things at her. She's like, women, I would never hire a woman. They're, they're terrible on a Anyway, she's a genuine character of New York film history. I've only courted Abel Farrar via email, but we've never actually been able to speak because he is very difficult to get a hold of. Yeah, I, you know what? I think it's because I, I, we offered to fly him. It's like for him, it's a free trip to New York, and he's always shooting. I mean, Abel is, listen to me, Abel, like I'm on a first-name basis. I've met the man one time. Mr. Ferrara, maestro, they probably call him, is extraordinary character and a brilliant, obviously a brilliant guy. And he said something interesting. He's like, the second you get any money, you start shooting. Don't wait for all the money. It may never come. Once you start shooting, you got to shoot the day the money comes. Boom. Like this. Uh, he, he was telling me this the story of getting Ms. 45 made. But basically, he like started getting the money. He had some money. He didn't have the girl. You know, here's the thing. You can't make Taxi Driver without De Niro. I couldn't make this movie without the girl. I didn't have her yet. I was dying here because I had all this money. All this money being, you know, $40,000 or something. But uh, he did get it made. And, and so I think the reason that he's uh, 
Uh, so happy to come and talk to us and show the movie. He's proud of the movie, of course. But, you know, it's like, you're going to fly me to New York? Great. Okay, I'll be there. Yep. Yeah, tell me the story of him getting it made. I'm very curious about that. So basically, the story is he wanted to make movies. He had started making movies as a student. First movie he made was a porno movie because everybody knew that somebody had given this hairdresser in the Bronx, Damiano, the money to make something called Deep Throat. And the person who gave him the money made like $50 million. Where he got the money from, let's just say it wasn't from a dentist. Okay. It was from, it was from somebody who had that kind of money lying around for a porno movie. Yeah. Louis the Lip. Yeah. Louis the Lip. So Abel Ferrara was able to say, listen, if I can find another lip, maybe somebody will give me some money to do a porno and we can promise them they'll make money. So I think he made a little bit of money. Obviously, nobody ever made the kind of money that Deep Throat made again. But they made enough money that they could make a second movie. And he says, he tells this great story where he's like, so what the hell are we going to make? You know. So I'm looking at the thing, the list of the top movies. And the top one, the genius one, is called Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's a guy chasing girls in bikinis around with a chainsaw. You know, guy in a mask. So the guy that I'd made the porno for said, what do you got next? And I said, well, it's not a chainsaw. It's a drill. The driller killer, huh? And the guy's like, great, I like it. So he gave him, you know, the $7 that it took to make the driller killer, which made some money. You know, a driller killer made some money. I mean, it wasn't the hit that Texas Chainsaw Massacre was either. And he's the lead in Driller Killer, right? He plays the guy. So the guy sent him the money and he made the movie and they made they made enough money that the guy's like, okay, Mr. Big Shot, now you're on a roll. What's next, you know? And he said that his best friend from when he was a kid, this guy, Nicholas St. John, who's still alive and is totally retired from the business, um, had a script, a treatment that he said was brilliant. And he pitched it to the guy on the phone, whatever his version of Lily the Lip was. I don't know, whoever was paying for the porn and the driller killer. And he's like, it's about this woman and this terrible thing happens to her and she goes home and this other terrible thing happens and she gets a gun and she goes fucking crazy, you know? And the guy's like, yeah, great. Let's make that movie. So that's when, you know, and, and he says, when a guy like that says, let's make that movie, the money shows up, you know, the next day, boom, it just, you know, I didn't ask him, was it in a paper bag? I mean, how did it, you know, how did it, was it in a suitcase? So it, it got to him and he said, but we didn't have the girl. You know, I want them to start shooting like that day. And I had to find the girl. And, and then he finds the girl and uh, the rest is history. She's an extraordinary, she gives an extraordinary performance. She was 17 years old, this young woman, Zoe Tamerless, Tamer, Tamerless, Tamerless, I'm not sure if to pronounce it, who unfortunately, well, she then wound up writing uh, or co-writing The Bad Lieutenant script and was in the bad lieutenant and was dead before she was 40. She was, uh, she became a heroin addict and able stories. He would tell stories like that forever. I hope you get them on your show or the question will be how many volumes, well, he's going to write the book. You know, he's like, now I can't tell you. He's I'm telling you, he's going to be pissed off. You can't, you've got to wait till, for, till after the festival before you put this up because uh, you put it up whenever you want. I don't He's, you know, he's, uh, shit, I told you the story. It was going to be in the book. He's great. All these guys are incredible characters. And, you know, I mean, it really takes something to make a movie. You know, you and I write and we do what, what we do. But but to actually 
you have the gumption to go out and make a movie. You know, uh, Henenlotter, Frank Henenlotter tells the hilarious story of like they needed this guy to run naked through the streets of New York and they just did it. You know, they just went down literally in Tribeca and they put up a couple of lights and just, okay, Joe, let's go, you know, and no permits, no nothing. It was old school, much more fun, run and gun kind of time to make movies, you know, very different. Well, speaking of old school, tell me a little bit more about the zine. How old school are, are you going with that? Are you doing like the Xerox and glue stick stuff or are you actually getting it professionally printed? What's so funny is that when we started the project, and it's when I say we, I mean me, and then I got my kid and Jane's assistant to help, and I really thought that's how we were going to do it. I'm like, this is how you make a zine. You, we, we're going to put down you know, 48 pages with glue stick or tape. And they were like, what are you talking about, you dinosaur? Who that? What do you what do you even mean? No printer can print that. And they were right. I would have to, I mean, but I did. I thought we were going to go to the Xerox shop, like you and I did, and Xerox a thousand copies and put it together drinking mescal until you know six o'clock in the morning, right? And they're like, no, no, you take they're gonna do it all on on computers. We'll input everything and we'll scan it and we'll make it look like that. So so I, I was amazed, sort of mortified, because I really did want to play with a glue stick. But the fact is that we just barely got it finished by the skin of our teeth. You know, it's 48 pages plus covers. And it was all that we could do to get it done in time, even with the help of computers. So the idea of actually cutting and pasting it, it really would have looked like it was made by three blind kindergartners. Because I had no idea what I was doing. So that it looks at all professional. And the funny thing is that 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 I was literally just dealing, it's, it just went to the printers today. And they were like, you know, you didn't size it correctly with enough room for a bleed. And I'm like, you might as well be saying something in another in a foreign language to me. What did I do wrong? How can I do it better? And they're like, well, if you if you leave it the way it is, when we cut it. When we print and cut it, there's gonna it's gonna be kind of sloppy and unprofessional. And I'm like, great, do that, <laughs> do that, <laughs> you know. And it's got no, no, really. Some of the pictures are gonna be like pixelated and a little blurry and weird. I'm like, right, okay, good. At least I'll get that. At least it's not gonna look like New York Magazine. We, it, it's no cheaper, by the way, to do it and make it look unprofessional than it is to make it look professional. But I chose to make it look as unprofessional as possible. Good for you. Thank you very much. We're printing 2,000 of them, which is either means I'm going to have 1,900 of them in my garage or everybody at the, you know, my hope, my dream is that is that people, you know, pass it around or pick it up. It's a souvenir. It's cool. And we have Jason Blum gives me a quote, Jane Rosenthal does, but Oren Pelly, who made the Paranormal Activity movies, a guy named Adam Marcus, um, Nick Kazan. Uh, a lot of really uh, Zach Penn, who wrote the Avengers and uh, Free Guy and a bunch of movies. Brilliant guy. Gave me some a really extraordinary page of thoughtful um, analysis. A guy named Nate Moore, who is one of the um, sort of the brain trust over at Marvel. He's the producer of um, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever and um, uh, The Eternals. A, a brilliant, brilliant guy who hadn't been familiar with the movies. And he he was the only one of my friends who I asked to write something who actually watched all the movies and wrote something thoughtful about them. The rest of them were like, I don't know why you like this shit or these movies are great. They make me want to fucking drink beer and run out naked in the street. You know, I mean, 
he actually had like an interesting some set of ideas about how to contextualize things. So I appreciate it. Every day, on every street, in every city, women are insulted, abused, threatened. I envy all the people that are going to be able to see this on the big screen. It it looks fantastic and it just moves and it just does what it needs to do. I had only seen clips from, um, and a terror in the aisles. And they showed a bunch of clips from that. It was like a whole rape revenge section to the, the film. I spit on your grave. And- exactly. And I, I just remember, you know, Zoe putting on that lipstick and putting on the nun habit. I mean, just all of that is wonderful stuff. I love, I mean, of course with Ferrara, his Catholic imagery is just everywhere. And just, I love the way that it shoots through that movie. It's certainly the strongest of the three movies. I mean, just cinematically, right. It's a terrific movie. I mean, it is. It's a very tough, hard-hitting movie and kind of a brilliant movie. The music is great. Her performance is absolutely mesmerizing. And, you know, it's a it's a much um, smarter and more sophisticated version of the story. I mean, it's not the it's not an art movie, but it ain't I spit on your grave either. I mean, here's a picture that really has some things to say. Something that I really love about the movie is that is that the young woman is um, disabled. She's uh, for, from trauma, it turns out. She's been traumatized early in her life and can't speak. And so winds, I mean, the cliche is, you know, the gun does the talking for her. But this notion of a disabled person as your main character, I think, was was extraordinarily powerful and a way to make this woman so, so vulnerable and so sympathetic that you're on her side from the jump. And then when she is victimized and terribly assaulted, when she takes the gun in hand and goes off and does what she does and then goes over the edge, you're with her the entire way. It's a really pretty extraordinary piece of filmmaking. So then you saw Tenement and Basket Case. Yes. Holy shit. I, it had been forever (laughs) since I'd seen Basket Case, but revisiting that, Waiting for my wife to see Belial. I was just waiting and waiting, just like, oh boy, you're in for a treat, honey. And then the stop motion animation, there's a sequence that has to be seen to be disbelieved. I am preparing to perform an operation that for over 20 years, every doctor has refused to perform. You will come face to face with Basket Case. The judge of my success or failure. Nurse, slip on my specially designed surgical mask. Dr. Cutter, I beg you one more time. Please ask for another nurse to assist you. It's too late now. The patient has been sedated. He's better off dead. Hasn't he killed enough? I'll let him die. Get me out of here. There's blood all over 
different twist in horror. To keep the blood off your face, a free, specially designed surgical mask will be provided for every patron entering the theater. Don't dare enter without your mask. That's how it becomes a cult movie when something is, quote, so bad that it's good, right? And when I say bad, I just mean it's so handmade. So, like, we have to get this done. We have to figure out a way to do it. And we're going to do it the best we can and hope it works out. And then it was up there on the big screen. It, it, it makes you love that uh, to me. The way that people are going to be able to experience these things with an audience, to be able to, to see warts and all these movies on that screen with an audience, that feeling that you probably haven't had for three years, if not ever, because people seeing exploitation films in a theater just doesn't happen that often, but to have these and to have them presented this way and to have that audience and that experience, I mean, this is, it's going to be kind of a a welcome back to the world. And just that shared enthusiasm is, I can see people going nuts for these films. I'm so excited. I'm so glad you say so. And and I I really hope so. Again, I've been living a little bit in trepidation of like, how do I make sure? Because again, as the, your husband, I was a husband as the father of kids, people didn't just wander into these movies, right? You know, you and I maybe saw them on video. People see these movies on video. You go to the, you go to the cult section, you go to the X-rated or exploitation section, you're seeking out some tough, dirty movies, however you want to put it. And if you went to the, see them in the theater, if you were lucky enough, like I was to see Ms. 45 and Basket Case in the theater, you knew you weren't going to see E.T., right? You know, you and your friends would look at each other and say, are we ready for this? You know, is this really what we're going to do? Are you sure you just want to spend your money on this and, and not go see the new, uh, new uh, Clint Eastwood movie? And we're like, yeah, come on, let's do it. You, you know, we drink a little bit and go in and get ready to, to hang on to our asses. And we were like, yes, you know, you're yelling at the screen. So trying to give people who have no idea what these movies are, some sense of what they might be getting themselves in for both good and bad, because they're not for everybody. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to sell these movies to folks who are not going to want to like them, but the folks who might not have seen them, who, who might not otherwise come to them. I really do want to get them in the theater and get them screaming. Of course, I want them to drink beforehand. I think a great time is going to be had by all. And then they can hurl questions at the filmmakers, you know. Oh, yeah. And like you said, there's not better storytellers than the three people that you have there. We were lucky enough to have Hen and Lauder on the show years ago for Frankenhooker. He spins yarns, man. He is fantastic. And yeah, I think he was just about to start work on a documentary about sexploitation films or something. And I was just like, that's exploitation. Yeah, you're the guy to make it. You know, he knows all of this stuff. He is so well versed. He's like the. You know, I mean, I won't say that Joe Dante some sort of like, you know, uh, upper crust, but he's like the sewer level Joe Dante of just <laughs> as far as like all the details and just getting all that stuff out there. And what a, what a nice gentleman, too. Yeah, the literally the nicest guy in the world and just the most the most down to earth, like most horror or exploitation folks. You know, Roberta is a trip. I mean, she's she you did. I haven't it's interviewed her, but I've I've oh heard God. her on things, and then yeah. just the stories. We just had John Amaro on the show a few months ago. Oh, you did, yeah. yeah. Quote him in, in the scene, and yeah. him him talking about how he got her a job at a theater that he was working at, and she was skimming money off the top. And <laughs> oh, you bet she was. I mean, that's a great. 
thing. And I haven't asked her like directly the stories of how this business worked. Ferrara mentioned that a little bit. He was talking about one of these one of these guys that we're sort of talking about, right? Who was financing these movies, and and how the guy had made another porno and had made a fortune on it because he he owned the theaters. He owned it, right? That, that's how like Last House on the Left or Friday the 13th kind of got made. These guys would own six drive-in theaters and they'd say, uh, can you make me a horror movie for $10,000 and I'll show it all the time, you know? I mean, literally, that's how these things would get made. So so he financed uh, some some movie and, um, and, and Ferrara was like, and it was all cash. You got to understand, this was a cash business. You didn't show your card and tap your card to get into the theater. These were $2 tickets and everybody from everybody was skimming from everybody else. Every four ticket that went fourth ticket that went in the, the ticket taker and the guy at the cashier's booth were splitting that number. They would have to show a certain number of tickets. They'd show the tickets and they'd show the money and they kept, they kept the rest. Everybody was skimming. And, and the distributors, there was literally, I mean, if, one of the best books that I'm sure you've read, if you haven't get it tomorrow, a youth in Babylon by David S. Friedman, right? Who talks about, it's a brilliant book. And he was a huckster and an exploitation filmmaker. And he talks about the 40 thieves, these distributors who were, everybody would steal from everybody else. And it was kind of fun. How the hell do you get your money? You're a filmmaker and you're showing it in Cincinnati. You're going to go to Cincinnati and watch and count how many tickets are sold for every performance to make sure you're getting the actual number. No one had the actual number. Even the, even the guys who ran the theater didn't have the actual number. So these stories of, you know, she was a distributor also. Roberta's an amazing, an amazing figure, right? Here, here's a woman who, starting about 18 or 19, started as a, quote, actress in, in these movies that her husband was making. But she was an actress. She became a, a sound editor. She became an editor. She did music. She was the DP. She was the camera operator. She was a producer. She was a distributor, a writer, and a director of movies. She, she had all these jobs on over 70 feature films in about 20 years. I mean, it's kind of amazing, amazing career that she had. And um, she knew that everybody was stealing. You know, she knew she was stealing location. She was skimming money. She was cooking books. I mean, and, and she's like proud of it. Yeah, we probably stole some money. It was a living, you know. They were stealing from us. I had to steal from them. What are you talking about? How the hell do you think the business worked? You're on Times Square. You think they're not stealing? If you didn't have balls this big, you were not going to be in that business. That's kind of the truth, you know? And she was in it forever. She was amazing. Amazing character. So let's get down to brass tacks a little bit. What days or nights are these showing? June 9th is Ms. 45. It's at a theater downtown. I don't know the New York theater so well, but everyone's and the tickets are free. Please, please get your tickets. What? Okay? Free? But yes. Yes. Free. But you have to get them from the Tribeca site, right? You have to go to TribecaFestival.com or whatever it's called. Um, you may be able to put a link for folks. That would be great. Um, and if they're not free, tell them I sent you. I really do believe they're free. That's what they've told me. And I haven't bought any tickets because I'm, I get to go in there, so I don't have to worry about buying tickets. Ms. 45 is um, 9 o'clock Thursday, the 9th of June. Tenement with the one and only Roberta Finlay is 8.45 on Thursday, the 16th of June. And Basket Case is Friday, the 17th, also at 8.45. 
that's a tough one because that's going up against Heat. Michael Mann, De Niro, and Pacino are all presenting Heat at like seven o'clock. So I'm like, can I go to see Heat and get there late for Basket Case? And they're like, no, you want to do this fucking thing? You're going to be there on time. You're going to take the tickets yourself, you dirty bastard. No, they didn't say that. So I'm just like... One of the one of the, uh, Tribeca is incredible. They have all these fantastic shows. They're gonna Pacino's going to introduce The Godfather, and Pacino and De Niro and Michael Mann are going to talk about Heat and show Heat. I mean, come on, right? It's like Nirvana. Bob Odenkirk is going to be there and talk about Better Call Saul. Uh, Taylor Swift, for those of you who care, is going to be there presenting some kind of film. J Lo is going to be there. Pharrell, I believe, is going to be there. Little Baby, the one who's not in jail. I don't know. You and I are like, I wish I could be like, yeah, uh, Tyler Perry is going to be there. Uh, there's, I mean, the, you know, it's quite extraordinary what they've put together and how they do it every year. I don't know. So I'm just this tiny little part of it, but very, very happy and proud to be a part of it and let them that they're going to let me do this. And, um, and hopefully I don't embarrass myself or them too much. And next year we get to show, I don't know, what should we show? What else should we show? I mean, we could show uh, more hardcore porn. We could show Sisters to Palma's Sisters would be amazing. Get him out to, to talk about that, even though he's from Philadelphia originally. That was shot in Staten Island. Jonathan Penner, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Thanks, buddy. Really, really nice stuff. 